Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 84. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. We have another great episode for you today. But before that, readers, I want to thank you so much for all the reviews you've been leaving on iTunes, like this one from Megan. Ann Bogle and her guests have become the companions I do life with. I listen to Ann while I get ready for work in the morning, when I do the dishes at night, and any chance I get in between. Not only does she provide recommendations for what books to consider reading next, she offers me an entry into the conversation about books and all things literature that I don't have otherwise. What a wonderful podcast. Thanks so much for that, Megan. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you could rate or even better, review it on iTunes. Those ratings and especially reviews really help What Should I Read Next move up the iTunes charts. And that makes it so much easier for book lovers to find our show. Our giveaway to sweeten the deal is still happening. We're giving away five deluxe reading journal kits. That's the best-selling item in our shop at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. Each deluxe kit includes a Leuchtturm 1917 journal in your choice of colors, a tin of book darts, one of my very favorite readerly things, a few of my favorite pens, What Should I Read Next stickers, and more. To enter, leave a review on iTunes. We will randomly choose five winners and each will win their very own deluxe reading journal kit. We may not be able to tell who you are based on your Apple ID, so stay tuned. We'll announce those winners in a future episode and share how you can get in touch with us. Here's how to leave a review. Open up iTunes. You can do that by going to what should I read next podcast.com slash iTunes and clicking view in iTunes. Make sure to hit subscribe while you're there, then click or tap ratings and reviews. Rate the podcast with your star rating. We would of course love your five stars. Then click write a review to write your review as long or short as you'd like. Click submit and that's it. Thanks so much for taking two minutes out of your day to do it. We appreciate it so much. And of course, I hope you win that deluxe reading journal kit. Now for today's show. I'm talking to Sean Smucker, who was one of the very first people I met offline after I started blogging in 2011. I met Sean and his wife, Miley, while they were on their epic cross-country road trip with the whole family in a big blue bus named Willie. If that sounds like interesting reading, Sean wrote a book about the experience. It's called How to Use a Runaway Truck Ramp, and the title is not just a metaphor. It still freaks me out to remember reading about his experience in the Tetons. I just got to see Sean again at Book Expo in New York because we both have books coming out this fall. Sean has published quite a few books already, and you'll hear more about that in today's episode, but his newest is a bit of a departure. It's called The Day the Angels Fell. It's coming out September 5th, and since I've gotten to read it already, I can describe it for you as a YA, Neil Gaiman meets Madeline Lingle. I really enjoyed it. It will come as no surprise that Sean is also a big reader. Today, we dive into his lifetime favorites, and even I was surprised at the special significance some of those books and authors held for Sean, and even for his family. In response, I try to fill up his summer to-be-read list with lots of good stuff. Let's get to it. Next. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anne. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, I'm so glad you could come on. It is great to talk to you again in the all books, all the time format. We have actually known each other for forever in internet years. That's true. And just got to see each other in New York. Yep. Yep. And we have the doppelganger families we're used to. Oh, that's right. So back when I first met you, we were... How long have you and Miley been married? Uh, we've been married for 18 years this summer. 
We're only 17 years this summer, which I feel, I mean, we got married like scandalously young. So I feel like that makes me sound older than I am. Do you feel that yeah. way? <laughs> yes. 18 years seems, yeah, it seems like I need to be much, much older than I am. I want to make some like bad joke here about wise beyond your years or a different kind of wisdom, but there, I talked about it instead of doing it. That's just as bad. I apologize. Yeah. But when we first met, we had, we'd been married almost the same amount of time, four kids, weirdly the same ages. Some of them had the same names. And then you left us in the dust. And we did. We, th we thought you guys were right behind us. <laughs> and you failed. Um, no comments. <laughs> but your family of eight is adorable. Oh, and they seem like you. a joy and thanks. a pleasure. Yes, it's a, it's a fun circus. Let's, let's dig into your, your writing life. Do you mind? Like diving right in? No, no, that's fine. Sure. So you, your professional experience looks a little different than many authors because you have quite a few books under your name. Well, I started writing, uh, doing co-writing and ghostwriting um, back in 2009, full-time. And so since then, I've written around 20 books, maybe uh, seven or eight of those are for publishers, uh, co-written with, with, um, with the main author of the book not being me. And then the others were, were also co-writes, but self-published for the most part for other folks. And then after many, many years of trying, I finally landed a fiction book deal about a year ago. And my first novel comes out this fall. So my, yeah, so it's been a long trajectory, but I feel like it's been uh, really fun. And I learned so much. I continue to do co-writing. So I, I learned so much about stories and that sort of thing, writing for other people. Um, and it's fun to finally get to that point now where I can start to write some of my own books. We want to talk about your own books, but first let's back up into the co-writing. How on earth does one get into that? I was very fortunate. I had a wealthy aunt who was also uh, sought after by publishers to have her story told. And so she came to me, she knew I was a writer, and she asked if I would write some sample chapters for her agent. And I did that, and then the uh, the publisher and the agent, everybody really liked them. So I ended up writing the book, uh, and that's how I got into it. Once I had that first book, it really was just word of mouth, and people just kind of kept coming back to me and asking if I would help them with their book. So that's how I got into it. What did your writing life look like before that? Uh, I was very diligent in my writing life. Um, I wasn't necessarily – I wouldn't say I had much direction um, I mostly just journaled every day, like two or three pages. I would write for about an hour a day. Um, that started in the middle of college and then through, uh, through college. And then even once I got out, I just continued writing for about that amount of time every day. I'd, I would write a short story every once in a while, but for the most part, I was just practicing through journaling. And I did that for, let's see, so middle of college would have been like 98. And I wrote the book for my aunt in... 2009. So that's about 10 years of just sort of practicing, I guess. Your practice sounds remarkably like Anthony Doors for what it's worth. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. In Four Seasons in Rome, he really digs into how he practices as a writer. He's a big believer in journaling. And, you know, he won the Pulitzer. So I don't think it's all bad. No, there must be something to it. I've been wanting to read that book actually ever since I, you and Tish talked about that book, I believe. Yes. It's a, yeah. It's a great one. I mean, how about to each his own, but I think you would find a lot to appreciate there. 
and I don't see you taking your family of eight to Rome anytime soon. So maybe a little armchair travel would be uh, enjoyable. Well, Anne, you never know. You never know. You never know. But I did. Yeah, I'm not going to make a comment about Poppy in the train. That would be rude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. That's true. (laughs) Sean, I'd love to hear you talk about a newer incarnation of your writing life that has caught a lot of traction. And I found myself telling a lot of people who aren't big readers about, and that is your rideshare confessional series on your blog, seansmucker.com. Yeah. So I, uh, well, when you're a co-writer income is kind of like a roller coaster ride. So when I'm in between projects, it can be difficult sometimes for us to make ends meet. Uh, so I started driving for Uber and for Lyft Uh, let's see, probably about eight or nine months ago, actually, it would have been last fall. And, you know, as I normally do, I just started writing about my experiences. And it was kind of neat, because it turned into it ended up turning into these portraits of strangers. But it's amazing how much a stranger will tell their rideshare driver. I've always been I've been amazed at this ever since I started driving for Uber and Lyft that People, I think because they know they're never going to see you again, I don't know if that's it or not, but they're very, they seem willing to talk about just about anything. And so I started taking advantage of that. And I, I try not to identify anyone and I will change details if the story is too specific. But the people that I've met have been really fascinating. And so I started doing these short, um, yeah, short character profiles, I guess, of, the, of, of these folks. Uh, and I called it Rideshare Confessional. I've got a Facebook page and I post them directly to my blog when I write them as well. Do you remember the first story you heard from one of your passengers that made you think, oh my gosh, I got to go write this down? I remember being, I don't know if this was the first one, but I remember being very impacted early on. I was, I was in the car. It was either election night or a few nights after the election. And the person who I was with uh, was genuinely, I don't know if frightened is the right word, but but very concerned about the election and what it meant for them. And it sort of opened my eyes to just how different our experiences can be as as individuals. Um, and I live in a small city, so I'm, I feel like I'm really surrounded by tons of different people. Um, but that said, there's also things that really connect all of us. And so I think after hearing this gentleman's story, it sort of, it it made me become more deliberate in, in, in sort of pulling for stories and trying to figure out where people were coming from. Has that changed the way you approach your writing? That's a good question. I don't, uh, not consciously. I don't think so. But I mean, that said, I, I do feel like it's, it sort of challenged me to open my eyes more about the characters and the novels that I write uh, because I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's become a lot easier for me to hone in on who these people are that I'm driving. And so I definitely want to, I want to be able to go deeper with my own characters as well. So that, that I guess it has in that way. Sean, I really wanted to jump in right away and ask you about your writing life because I'm so excited about what you're doing and because I've known you as a writer, but I have no idea what your history is as a reader. Tell me an early reading memory at which point you knew like, hmm, books are pretty cool. I'm in this for the long haul. Oh, that is so easy. I have a, I, in my Sunday school class, our teacher was reading uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to us. And he only read the first couple chapters and I was 
totally amazed. I had never heard a book like this before. I was probably seven, maybe seven or eight and totally captivated, begged my parents to buy me the box set from the church library, which they did and which I ended up reading, you know, literally dozens of times. And that's not an exaggeration. And so by the time I got to later elementary school and then junior high, I was all over Lord of the Rings and Madeline Langle. Uh, but that that first read of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is really what, what snagged me. What was it about it? It was about it was about the ease of access to another world, both for Lucy and for me as the reader. I think I think uh, and I never even really thought of this until just now answering your question, but I think her her journey through the wardrobe was really very it was very close to the journey that I took as a reader in that book and going into a totally different world. And so I think I was amazed that that an author could take me on that kind of a journey. Now that you've grown up, are you able to quantify a little bit what it was about that book that made it so accessible, both to you as an adult and as a seven-year-old, just why it was so convincing? Yeah, I I think we have uh, some some sort of primal fears as kids about losing our parents or being away from our parents permanently. And so I think there was something about the Pevensey kids and their experience that definitely tapped into that, that sort of primal fear. But also I think tied with that as a kid, I think we also have, I wouldn't say it's a longing to be away from our parents, but I think there's definitely something appealing about this idea of independence, even at such an early age. My kids, you know, they're always playing this kind of stuff. They're like, oh, we're, you know, they pretend that they're orphans or they pretend that they're lost or they pretend that they're like on some faraway island. I'm like, really, guys? Like, <laughs> is that is that how you feel about us as your parents? But I think there is something to that, that when we're children, you know, we're sort of obsessed with that idea of being without our parents. So I, I think that was probably the primary thing for me was that here you have these children a war is going on, they're taken out of their, you know, they're away from their parents, and they have to kind of survive on their own. Interesting. When's the last time you read through that series? I read through that series, um, let's see, probably three or four years ago with the kids. I was curious if you were going to say when I was 25 or last month. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely and you know, our kids are kind of spread apart. So it's like every three or four years, we end up reading back through a lot of the same books, you know, we're just just now starting to read through Harry Potter with our with our two middle kids. Um, and so when our two young youngest ones, Leo and Poppy, get old enough, I'm sure we'll we'll hit them all over again. Now, so far, you've mentioned fantasy authors. Is that a theme we're going to be seeing more of as we move into your reading life? Or is that just what happened to hook you as a kid? Yeah, you know, that hooked me as a kid. I wouldn't say I don't think I'm not really into fantasy, uh, just like the very hardcore fantasy. But I definitely do enjoy fantasy elements, and I think surreal fiction or surreal realism uh, is something that really appeals to me. Like Neil Gaiman, The Ocean at the End of the Lane is one of my favorites. Um, I think whenever you take somebody who's in sort of a, a realistic situation and add some fantastical elements, that's, that's something I really enjoy. Sean, are you ready to talk a little bit about your books? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. What's the first book you love? 
So I'm going to go with Blindness by Jose Saramago. It's one of these, it sort of goes along with what I was talking about with, with realistic books, but with fantastical elements. Basically, it starts off with uh, a guy who is struck blind, but it's a white blindness, and it ends up spreading. It's, it's contagious, highly contagious. And so it, the book tells the story of uh, a small group of people who are affected by this in an entire city that's that's gone blind. So I recommended this book on the podcast before. It was in episode 48 to Max Dunn, but we have not heard about this from a reader who already has read it and loved it. So that's fun. You brought this up today. This book is unusual. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have to say it's brutal. It is definitely a brutal book. Some of the scenes in it are are really graphic, and some of the things that happen are really terrible. And I think the reason that is 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 Saramago taps into some of our basest instincts, uh, especially when it comes to survival. Uh, and so you have these people who are initially housed in a sanatorium, and you know the the things they have to do to stay alive are are not pretty. So that. That is part of the bizarreness of it. Uh, I think the writing style also contributes to the bizarreness. Uh, I read this for the first time in college. I think it was written in around 98, or at least I think that's when he won the Nobel Prize for literature. But this book came out just as he had won that. And his writing style is very unique. Uh, Stream of consciousness, very little punctuation. You know, some of his very little paragraph or very little use of paragraphs. So he'll have sentences that will go on sometimes for an entire page. Uh, So it it is definitely very unique as far as the writing style goes as well. And it's been a while for me. But if I remember, the structure of the text degenerates as the epidemic spreads. Yeah. And and he's, he's really a brilliant writer. I mean, if you look through the books that he wrote, the gospel according to Jesus Christ was just incredible. Although it did get him kicked out of the Catholic church. There was the stone raft. There was all the names, which was an incredible book. And so he does this in a lot of his books where the style of the writing uh, corresponds to, you know, the thematic elements and, and the sort of direction that the story is taking. And what do you think about that as a reader? Um, I wouldn't say I know it didn't distract me. Uh, I, I wouldn't have even probably noticed it maybe the first first read through. But I I love when there's some depth, you know, beyond just the text. So I, I think it's pretty cool. All right. Because some people think, oh, my gosh, it was such a multisensory experience. And some people think well, you're trying too hard. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. I'm glad to hear that landed for you. And I will keep that in mind as I recommend who knows what. But we are going to figure it out. Sean, what's your second favorite? Uh, the second one I wanted to bring up was The River Why by David James Duncan. And the reason I chose The River Why, as opposed to The Brothers K, which is really one of my favorites of all time, but I, so many people talk, it seems to be getting a resurgence right now. So, pe- so many people are talking about The Brothers K. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I don't, I mean, it's a phenomenal book and it deserves it. So maybe it's just taken some time. Um, there's a lot of he has a lot to say politically in that book. So maybe that's sort of resonating with people these days. Uh, and there's also, you know, with the, there's some war themes and religion themes. And I think those are all things that seem to be coming to the forefront in our society. So maybe, maybe that's the, the regeneration of interest. I don't know. I don't know, but I love that book. I just read it a couple years ago, but I haven't read the river Y and I'm 
so I, I'd love for you to sell me on it. It's so good. And it's so good in, in different ways than the Brothers K. Like, I feel like the River Y is actually much more accessible. Um, it's not as long. It's not, the pace is a little faster. It's in the first person, which I also think makes the pace faster. And it's super quirky. I mean, the, the narrator is a very quirky guy. His parents are, are bizarre, but funny. Um, and so it just kind of tracks his coming of age, leaving high school. Basically what happens is he moves out into the middle of nowhere because he wants to live his ideal life of like sleeping, eating and fly fishing. And so that's all he does for a really long time. I mean, months, maybe years, I can't remember. It's been a little while, but he does that for a really long time and is sort of confronted with this idea that that's not enough. Like, even if you do the things that you love to do the most, and if that's all you do by yourself, it's, it's not enough to make a life. And so it sort of talks about his exploration of that. And then also it has some, some religious themes in it as well as he, he meets a gentleman who is, I think he's a Buddhist. And so he ends up sort of working through all these various things with him, but it's a really fun read. I think it's a fun read. And it, it actually has a really compelling uh, romance in it as well. Really kind of a fun, cute uh, love story. Okay. Having only read The Brothers K, I wouldn't have expected you to use the word cute in any way, shape, or form for David James Duncan. I, and I understand that. I think the really unique thing about this is, is the way – I think it's the first person that does it. And so he, he meets this girl and, and his – sort of infatuation, his immediate infatuation for her is very adolescent. And I think that adds to the cute factor of like, he's falling in love sort of for the first time. And um, so it, it's a it's fun in that way. That sounds, oh, I just love the Brothers K and I would love to read more. Okay. And I've got to ask, have you read A River Runs Through It? Because I always hear these books mentioned in tandem only because of the fly fishing thing, I think. I have never read that book and I love the movie and I've had so many people tell me I should read it, but I've, I've never read it. I watched the movie when I was too young and I just remember being a little uh, sleepy during it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which wasn't fair. I'd probably really like it now. Sean, what's your third book? Okay, so my third book is just an amazing book. It's Journal of a Novel by John Steinbeck. Uh, the subtitle is The East of Eden Letters. And East of Eden is one of my favorite books as well, so I have to throw that out there. But the book is its simply a journal. And Okay, so when, when John Steinbeck wrote East of Eden, which he considered to be his sort of penultimate work, he wrote it, he would handwrite all of his first drafts. And with this one, he had a journal. And on the left hand side, every day before he started writing, he would write a journal slash letter to his editor at Viking. And then on the right hand page, he would do his writing for the day. And so every, every day, or every spread of pages is on the left hand side, a journal entry on the right hand side, east of Eden. And this book is just a compilation of all the left-hand pages that he wrote while he was writing East of Eden. I didn't know this existed. That sounds fascinating. Give us, give us the flavor of what we would find on those compiled left-hand pages. Yeah, so this is great. I've actually got a, I, I have the book here in front of me. And it's so much fun because he was, he was actually, uh, he did not have a lot of confidence in himself, or at least he didn't 
he, he didn't write like he did. And so in the first few entries, he's just sort of talking about what he wants to do in the book, and he doesn't actually get started. February 13th on a Tuesday, it must be told that my second workday is a bust as far as getting into the writing. I suffer, as always, from the fear of putting down the first line. It is amazing the terrors, the magics, the prayers, the straightening shyness that assails one. It is though the words were not only indelible, but that they were spread out like dye and water and color everything around them. So he goes on like that. And it's like, I mean, there were days where he where he basically says, I hate my writing. I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, here he writes, now I get the old, old fear and rush. I hope I may live to finish this book. And that will be a long enough life for me. Sometimes it comes across as a little bit self-important. Like he kind of, it's almost like he knows that someday this is going to be a book. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is so interesting. That sounds really fascinating. Tell us a little bit about your experience with East of Eden. Uh, East of Eden, I read probably 15 years ago for the first time. And I've read it a few times since then, but not very many. I just found that book to be... Uh, the symbolism with the characters and sort of with the backdrop of Bible stories was very interesting to me. The, the twin brothers and the whole Cain and Abel thing. And um, yeah, it, 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 when I read it, I don't know that I had read a, a book of that length and depth before. Uh, and so it really caught my imagination. You know, the other thing I just I just remembered about that book is that it probably has the most evil character in all of literature, as far as I'm concerned. Kathy um, in that book is absolutely the face of evil. When I picked up East of Eden for the first time, just a few years ago, I've read a whole lot of Steinbeck, but not Journal of a Novel and not East of Eden. Um, it was never assigned reading and I just never got around to it. I was shocked because like, what decade did he write that in, John? Yeah, probably the 40s. Let's see. Yeah. He was writing about a psychopath in the 40s. That was not what I expected at all. Yeah, and some very interesting themes as well. You know, for that era, I'm kind of surprised that it, it's not on the list of banned books that you see. Oh, surely, surely at some point somebody banned that. It must, Yeah, it must have been. But not like, not the top list. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I just think the way that he was able to create, create Kathy and then also... Uh, Samuel, I think it's Samuel Hamilton. Is that his last name? Samuel. Um, he, the sort of patriarchal figure is such a fantastic character. And we actually named our, our fourth child after him, Sam. Um, so yeah. I didn't know that is, does Lucy have an antecedent too? Lucy is from, uh, Narnia and, and actually, uh, Abra is from East of Eden. What? There's a character in East of Eden, Abra. And Cade... Who is it? I do not remember. Yeah, so at the end, when when they have children, uh, I think one of Caleb's children is named Abra. It's one of the brothers has a daughter named Abra. And so Cade is from the brothers K. Okay, so that's the mark of a true reader. Is that why you keep having kids? Because you haven't run out of books that you adore yet? <laughs> we named all of our kids after book characters, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. We're, we're actually finished. We would only have to have two more children to catch up with you. Exactly. Yeah. No problem at all. I'll think about it. Okay. I'll yeah. talk to Will. <laughs> Moving on from babies and literary characters we'd like to name them after. Um, oh, wait. This is a big change of pace. So let's go from things you cherish and treasure to um, 
you know, a book that just didn't land for you. Are you ready? You ready to go here? Yeah. Yeah. I hate doing this. I'm sure. I mean, I know most people say that. I, I think, especially as a writer, I just cringe to think that someday someone would pick one of my books as one that, that didn't land. But I think, okay, so I went with The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. And let me qualify it by saying, love Northern Lights, the first book in the trilogy. Really love The Subtle Knife. I thought that was the strongest book of the three. And then with The Amber Spyglass, I just felt like it fell flat for me. And I, and I also got a little bit annoyed because I felt like, I mean, you could tell that one of the themes throughout the book is very anti-religion, which I don't have a problem with. I, there are many books that I love where that, that is the theme. But in book three in Amber Spyglass, he got, he got so preachy about it that it, it, it really started to grate on my nerves. I felt like he left his job as novel writer and almost became sort of like an essayist in preaching about the, the downfalls of religion. So that's the book. Okay, so you don't like it when books get preachy and heavy-handed. Yeah, I, I really feel like um, the novel needs to stand on its own as a story. And I think the things that come through are extremely important, but, but if they become primary, I, have a, I, I take issue with that. I'm really sympathetic to that complaint. I've never read Philip Pullman, but as a, as a reader who cares about craft and story, I feel a little bit uh, schnookered when I feel like what instead I'm reading is an agenda. Like I don't like a book with an agenda. Tell a good story and a good story will be persuasive in the way that the author is hoping for. And anything that feels like a thinly veiled persuasive mission just feels clunky. Sean, what are you reading right now? So my reading life right now is very interesting because I'm driving so much. I've actually been listening to books uh, quite a bit. I, I joined Audible maybe six months ago, and I've been picking the longest books I could get because I'm very cheap <laughs> with my credits. And I also, I, I'm, very, I'm sort of hesitant about listening to books that I haven't read before because I'm scared I'm going to miss something. I tend to space out. So I've been listening, I've been listening to books that I've already read, which has been very rewarding and also very informative for the author side of me. Uh, I found it to be a wonderful exercise in learning about writing. Unpack that a little bit. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, well, and I think especially, like I said, because it's books I've read before, I'm not listening to find out what happens next. I'm really trying to pay attention to how the author's setting me up and how they're going about telling the story, what the structure is, uh, but also what does the language sound like when it's read out loud? And, you know, I, so I'll jump right into the ones I've been listening to all the light we cannot see, which is such a beautiful book and even more beautiful when you listen to it. So that one was amazing. Um, I listened to home by Marilyn Robinson, which, Oh my goodness. I forgot how sad that book was until I listened to it again. Um, but, a, you know, beautiful language and the way that she tells that story so seamlessly without chapters and parts and sections, is, it just amazes me. Um, and then let's see. So A Prayer for Owen Meany was the first one that I got on Audible because that's 
probably my favorite book of all time. And how was that on Audible? Because I bought that literally like three years ago and I've never listened to it. I don't, it depends on what version you got. The version I got was amazing. The The woman who read it, her voice, when she did Owen Meany, I mean, it was incredible. It, it was exactly like what I thought his voice would be like. So that was, that was quite a feat, I thought. Uh, what else am I, re- let's see, I listened to uh, Ready Player One, which I really enjoyed. That was a first time, listen. Uh, I had never read that before, and I and I actually got that based on recommendation here on the podcast, and I loved it. I thought it was great, uh, very entertaining. the The writing was okay, you know. I wouldn't say it was fantastic, but he could really tell a story, and that was that was good to hear. Nice, Sean. What do you want to be different in your reading life, or is there anything you want more of? I tend to pick books that I should read, or books that I feel like I should read which tend to be pretty heavy books, literary books. And I think I would like to read stuff that's lighter and I need to read stuff that is, uh, that pulls me through more because with six kids and a very busy schedule and Ubering on the side, I don't have a ton of time. So I need to have that motivation to get back into a book because I can't wait to find out what happens next. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'm up for the challenge. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll get back to your books right after the break. Sean, welcome back. I can't wait. Oh, I can because I feel like this is a tall order. Okay. So you appreciate a good literary novel, obviously. You like elements of magical realism which many of the great like classics of magical realism are so long and lush and rich and maybe not known for being the kind of novel you can knock off in an afternoon. But actually, you know what? I forgot. Long is good for you as long as it propels you forward. Yeah, I don't mind as long as it's pulling me through. Okay. Sean, as I try to narrow down my list of books that I'm, I'm really excited about too, but I'm still searching for a third. Help me understand a little what you're looking to get out of these? Are you filling the driving hours? Are you looking for like refreshment or writerly inspiration? Is there some other thing you're looking for? Help me out here. That will really influence the direction we go. Yeah, sure. No, I I wouldn't mind um, getting another recommendation for something uh, that would be sort of writerly inspiring or, um, yeah, something to sort of, uh, I, I really do enjoy reading books about writing, you know, Bird by Birds, one of my favorites. So uh, that would, I would, you know, that would be good. So writing would be good, but uh, are we just looking for books to add to the stack? Yeah. Yeah. I th- well, you know, it would be great to have a book that Miley and I could listen to because we're about to head out on a super long road trip. What kind of stuff do you all like to listen to together? We listen to, let's see, what have we listened to together? That's a really good question. We like the same, we like similar books, but I'm not, I can't really think of anything that we've listened to together. So this would be a first. Is this another Smucker epic road trip? Because, well, how long has it been now since you all took the big blue van around the country? That was, I think that's when we first met you in 2012. So five years ago is when we went around the country in the big blue bus. Are those archives still on your site? They are. 
Yes. All right. We'll link to that. Okay. Where are you headed this time? This time we're going to Charlotte. Uh, that's where Miley's family lives. And we try and get down there in the summer every year for, you know, two or three weeks. So we'll be down there. Uh, actually, we're staying for almost a month this time, but I can work down there. So it's it's all good. All right. Saying Charlotte makes me think Southern. All right. First of all, here, let me think. I always debate whether we should start close and then go zany. We'll start close and then we'll go zany. Okay. Have you read any Kent Haruf? Because I'm really liking Our Souls at Night for you. No, I haven't. Okay. I actually got this recommendation from Andrea Griffith, who was on the podcast last summer. And I remember her saying like, what do you mean you've never read anything by Kent Haruf? He sounds so perfect for you. So I finally got around to it. I don't want to tell you too much about the plot. Sean, there's one thing that really makes me hesitate about this book for you. And it's the fact that it's so short. So it's only 179 pages and the text is not tiny and a committed reader who wants to know what's going to happen next um, could knock it off in an afternoon and two cups of coffee. That sounds great. I'm not, I read this on paper myself. It might, you know what? I'm not going to speculate on the audio book without getting too gushy. I was just blown away by how he took Kent Haruf took this unusual premise in a small town outside Denver, put two older characters who had both been widowed fairly recently, walked one of them into the other's lives, and then laid out such an improbable, poignant way to reflect on all manner of things in life and love and work and uh, regret. It, it just made me think like, how did he come up with this? Like, did he start with the premise? Did he start with the middle? What was he trying to accomplish? Just the writer in me is so curious about how he put the story together. And I have no idea what that answer is. If he has ever spoken about it, I have not yet even gone on the hunt for that. But anyone who enjoys like um, Ivan Doig, Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson, Wallace Stegner. This is smack in that wheelhouse. Oh, wow. You just named some of my favorite authors. So I thought I did. I think we might have waxed poetic about our love for some of those before. So that's Our Souls at Night by Kent Haruf. I really like that for you. Okay, next up, I'm thinking about a big, sprawling South American novel a classic of magical realism. It's outside the genre you usually read. So in your own work, you're channeling Madeline Lengel and Neil Gaiman and a little bit C.S. Lewis. But I think maybe there's inspiration to be had a little further afield. What do you know about Isabella Lende? Ooh, someone I've always wanted to read but haven't. Fantastic. Okay, well... She is prolific. The one I really have in mind for you is one of her most popular. And honestly, that is why it's the house of the spirits. And it was published all the way back in 1985. Um, I remember first hearing about Isabella Lende from one of my fellow like freshman seminar students who was just gushing about the author she couldn't get enough of. So I'm thinking if a 19 year old girl can like blow through 500 pages in a weekend, um, then I needn't fear too much. They're like, oh no, like, will he find this as enthralling perspective? Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. 
So, but not not just her. I mean, I've read this one myself, but it's been a long time. And I've read some of hers from year to year. But okay, here's what we have here. This is set in Chile. It's a family drama. So we're following one family. And like, I don't I don't know if Elende always has magical realism, but there has definitely been that element in all of the novels I've read. And it, the women of the family have, uh, they have, they have gifts, unusual gifts. And she doesn't go into any kind of explanation as to like why or how you just as a reader accept that they do. So this is, uh, I think I keep saying lush. I mean, her descriptions are vivid and lush. It feels very much a product of its time and place. The characters are, uh, a little bit larger than life, uh, sweeping and epic are the kind of adjectives you use for this. And you could knock a book that you've been meaning to read for a long time off your list. How does that sound? That sounds great. It sounds great. Yeah, it actually, I mean, is it similar to 100 Years of Solitude or some of the things you're saying remind me of? Oh, definitely. I think they often get mentioned um, in the same sentence. And there's a reason for that. And they both, I mean, she's just such a good storyteller. Great. That sounds awesome. Okay. Now, this is a wild card. Can I give you... I'm going to give you pick two and a half. Have you ever read The Getaway Car by Ann Patchett? No. Do you know anything about it? No. This is... Here, let's start with the title. The Getaway Car is her writing. Who's going to take her out of her... The life she didn't want into the life she always dreamed of. And it was published back in 2011. It's only 45 pages. You can buy it on an e-reader for like three bucks or less, which maybe is not a great rate per page, but um, it's so good. And I think as a the writer in you would really enjoy it. I think readers who have no aspirations of ever writing and just really don't care would enjoy seeing the backstory of how, how a very successful writer got her beginning. And so she tells the story of how she made up characters in her head while she was waiting tables at TGI Fridays and how she got the grant to go live in some cabin on the coast to work for a month on the novel that was to become the patron saint of liars. The backstory of how all that happened was so fascinating. And if you ever need a kick in the pants, she has some good button chair advice. Like it's just hard work. Sit down and do it and stop whining. <laughs> Okay, so that's just two and a half. Book three is a wild card because you're driving south to see Miley's family. Have you ever read The Prince of Tides? No. Okay, so this is South Carolina, not North Carolina. Pat Conroy just died, I think, in the past year. Of course, as they do, um, a lot of journalists were shining the light on his body of work. And this is one that is proving to stand the test of time. Ooh, except you know what? If you wanted to, you could read his memoir about, uh, with more of the writing life in it, that's The Water is Wide. But for both of you, I'm thinking um, The Prince of Tides, classic Southern story, and the Audible rating is 4.5, which is insane, on 5,000 plus ratings. Oh, wow. So, yeah. The reviews say the narrator cannot go without mention. This guy is amazing. He deserves an Academy Award. You know, Charlotte is not exactly the deep south, but as you are packing up to head uh, a lot more southern than Pennsylvania, this could be 22 hours to keep you occupied. Um, it's very, how about an immersive reading experience? Like you feel like you were in the low country. Yeah, that sounds great. 
does it or does it sound like a wild no i love it but, yeah okay. no i love it okay yeah. I would be so curious to hear what you think, but I would want to, I mean, I wouldn't want to listen to that with the kids. And actually here's my first experience of the Prince of Tides. I bought it at our local bookstore with my own babysitting money when I was pretty young. I think I was in sixth grade. It was on a table of like staff picks and I had heard it was really good. And so I brought it home. I started reading and I was like, oh, wow, this book is not for me. I was just way too young for the themes. I don't think I made it past like page 25, but so it took me a long time to come back to it as an adult. But for a Southern road trip, I'm trying to think of like how to hammer your categories. We want great storytelling and narrative drive and all that. I think it might be a good pick. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's it sounds really good. All of them sound intriguing. I can't wait. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks, Anne. It was a lot of fun. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Sean and to let him know what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 84. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can keep up with Sean on his website, seansmucker.com. That's where you'll find book news and blog posts, including his popular Rideshare Confessional series. Rideshare Confessional also has its own Facebook page. Find it at Rideshare Confessional. Finally, Sean is on Twitter at Sean Smucker. We'll put those links in show notes. Readers, What Should I Read Next is once again going international next week. Here's a peek at what we have in store for you. And my earliest reading memory is that I misspelled bear and wrote beer when I was in kindergarten, (laughs) which maybe just foretold that I would be living in the Czech Republic as an adult. That's coming next week. Stay tuned. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Anne Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.